Welcome to Harper Academic Calling. I'm Michael Finan, Marketing Assistant with Harper Academic. Our podcast is designed to give educators, students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers, about their books. Harper Academic Calling Lisa Feldman Barrett. Professor Feldman Barrett has received numerous scientific awards, including a Guggenheim Fellowship in Neuroscience and an NIH Director's Pioneer Award. She's the author of How Emotions Are Made and, most recently, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. In the latter, she debunks common misconceptions about the brain and gives your students a succinct, easily digestible overview of the brain. We spoke with Lisa about some of the concepts she introduces in the book and how these apply to our own lives. All right, so joining us on our podcast right now, we have Lisa Feldman Barrett. She is the author of Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. And Lisa, thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure. So I want to start off. So you teach at Northeastern University, correct? Yeah, I'm a professor at Northeastern, yeah. Yeah, so tell tell us a little bit about what you teach. I don't really teach in the classroom. I run a laboratory. So what that means is I have 25 uh, young scientists under my Mm -hmm. supervision, plus pre-COVID, you know, somewhere between 70 and 100 undergraduates in the lab. Um, uh, Now we're, you know, we're we're a bit smaller. because you know it's difficult to bring human participants into the lab to run experiments, but um, but my main responsibility is to oversee direct this lab, which I do with a colleague, Karen Quigley, who is a physiologist, and um, so I don't do very much classroom teaching. Most of my teaching is um, graduate students, postdoctoral fellows junior scientists, um, and then um, research methods for undergraduates who are actually in my lab um, performing experiments. So you really do more hands-on work then? Pretty much, yeah. That's great. That's awesome. Um, So jumping into the book, um, to start us off, you open up with this concept of body budgeting. And so for the sake of the podcast, for our listeners here, could you explain a little bit about what that is and how that works? Yeah, sure. So brains evolved uh, to predictively control the body. Um, And the technical term for this is allostasis. That's a mouthful. Um, uh, But conceptually, what's happening is that your brain is attempting to anticipate the needs of your body and meet those needs before they arise. So for example, if you're going to stand up, Uh, as you stand, your brain is going to raise your blood pressure so that oxygen can get to your brain so that you don't faint, which would be really metabolically costly for you, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, if you did that. And so body budgeting is a really good metaphor because um, really what you're doing, what your brain is doing is it's budgeting resources, not not money, but glucose, salt, water, oxygen, all the things that the cells of your body need to keep you to stay alive and well. Um, And you can make deposits into that body budget. You can eat, you can sleep, you can hug a friend, you can 
give support to someone who you trust and who you love. These are all, some of them are actual literal investments and some of them are literal deposits and some of them are, are sort of metaphorical. So for example, if you and I were pals and we were exercising together, um, you know, like going for a walk together, or let's say up a steep hill, it would be less metabolically costly for me to walk up that hill than if I were alone or actually with someone I didn't like, which I know mm -hmm. is shocking, but that's actually how it works. And then you can also make withdrawals. So you can exercise, you can uh, learn something new, moving your body and learning something new are two of the most expensive things that your brain can do. Um, and also when we're stressed, that just means we're having, we're in a body budgeting moment where the brain is preparing the body for a big metabolic outlay uh, that may or may not happen. Um, so cortisol, for example, is not a stress hormone. That's just a myth. That's a misunderstanding. Cortisol mm -hmm. is a hormone that increases in moments when your brain believes that you're about to make a big metabolic outlay, because what it does is it gets glucose into your bloodstream really fast. So that's going to happen in, in a stressful moment, but it's so also sort of increasing happen. that budget in that way. Yeah, exactly. But it's like making a withdrawal right. um, from mm -hmm. your body budget. Um, but also when you wake up in the morning, right before you wake up in the morning, you have a huge surge of cortisol right before you exercise, huge surge of cortisol. Um, so it's not specific to stress, or maybe a better way to say it is that anything which taxes your body budget and requires a withdrawal is stress. Some stress is good stress, like exercise. Um, you know, you're you're making a, a withdrawal, and then later you'll make deposits. You'll drink uh, water. You'll have a good sleep. You'll have a protein drink, whatever. Um, and you know, that's like an investment in the future. You know, a a stronger, better you. Um, but when you're chronically stressed, meaning your brain is chronically making withdrawals or preparing to make withdrawals, then you can start to run a deficit. And that's not a good thing. Mm -hmm. So some of these are fairly obvious in terms of how they work, like, you know, eating that increases your body budget, exercising is obviously a deficiency there. There are those physical things we can easily think about. Um, but I like that you mentioned that how, you know, connecting with other people is something that, you know, can affect our body budget as well. And this is a concept that we actually touched on in a previous episode with um, Dr. Vivek Morthy uh, with a book called Together, which was about the power of connection. Um, so could you talk a little bit about um, how, how does that work exactly? Um, sure, I'm happy to. Yeah, these relationships. It's not, that it, it's not that connecting with other people can, it will. Mm -hmm. it, just, it will affect your body budget. That's just, the question is how, right? right? Mm -hmm. The best thing for a human nervous system is another human. The worst thing for a human nervous system is also another human. <laughs> so, um, so basically humans like us uh, evolved to be social animals. And that means a lot of things, but one of the things it means is that we metaphorically make deposits and withdrawals into other people's body budgets and they return the favor. Mm -hmm. So um, we regulate each other's nervous systems in very, very, um, uh, I would say unintuitive, but uh, impactful ways. So for example, if you and I were 
at a coffee shop, say, and or maybe even right now, uh, although it's a little harder to figure out how you do it over Zoom, it's possible mm-hmm. though. We could we could talk about that. But um, but let's say that you and I were were at a coffee shop and we were having a conversation, even though we didn't know each other very well. If things got off on the right foot and we liked each other and we trusted each other, then our heart rates would synchronize, our breathing would synchronize. Um, so we're co-regulating each other's nervous systems, right? Actually, our physical movements might start to mirror each other. So this is all established in research literature. What's really interesting though, is also that the words that we speak to each other uh, impact our body budgets because exactly the same circuitry in the brain that allows you to understand language and speak language also controls the systems of your body, your heart, your lungs, your GI system, your immune system, you know, not, not like similar neuro, like literally the same circuitry. And that's why, you know, I can text uh, three little words to a friend who's halfway across the world and I can change her breathing, her metabolism, her heart rate, right? Mm -hmm. Um, It's also the case that somebody could speak to you, you know, in a, an unkind way and in the moment um, or in a harsh way, or you could just anticipate that someone's gonna evaluate you negatively. And um, that will also change your heart rate and your breathing and so on. I have to tell you that in experiments, you know, when we wanna stress people, meaning we, we wanna get them into the state where, we're, where where their brain is making withdrawals, right? From mm-hmm. their body budget, we can show them negative, unpleasant pictures for like half an hour. Maybe they'll, you know, maybe something will happen. Or we could just pretend to be socially evaluating them. Maybe, mm. you know, there's uncertainty there. Two minutes. It's like very, very reliable finding. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're, we're extraordinarily sensitive to each other. And so th- this is a benefit and it's also potentially a uh, a cost. And that's a hard thing for people in our culture to, to, to understand and to realize and accept because we have these socially dependent nervous systems, but we live in a culture that prizes individual rights and freedoms. And there's like a direct conflict there that as a culture, we just seem unable to have civil conversation about, mm-hmm. um, but it, but it's there regardless of whether we talk about it or not, you know, and it's affecting people. Mm-hmm. So we are hopefully at the tail end of a pandemic right now, which has obviously isolated a lot of people. Um, And so obviously that's probably affected people's body budgets in that way. Um, But also another thing that I noticed people have been talking about, at least in my circle, um, is that when we come, when we've been coming back into society, we're all kind of more socially awkward than we were before. Um, And I was thinking about this when you talked in the book about the tuning and pruning that our brain does. does that have some sort of relationship to social skills that we've maybe forgotten from being away from people for so long? Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. Although I will say that the brain is incredibly plastic and, and it's, you know, people sometimes will say, Oh, it takes 25 years for your brain to finish wiring itself. It, your brain never finishes wiring itself. It's always tuning and pruning relative to your experiences in the world. So, um, or, or even just your imagined experiences. So, um, we're a little rusty now, Um, but you know, with 
a little bit of experience, it'll come right back like riding a bike, you know, or driving a car. Um, I would say the way to think about it is to really understand that our brains don't react to things in the world. So to us, it feels like, you know, we see something, we hear something, we react to it, but that's actually not what's happening. What's happening under the hood is that your brain is using past experience to predict what's going to happen next. And we can predict really well without knowing it, right? We're not really, it's having all completely, you know, uh, under, oh, you know, you're not aware, it's unconscious, it's very automatic, very effortless for the most part, for most people, neuro, for a neurotypical brain, this is how brains are wired and they, how they develop. So, you know, you have a lifetime experience of what we would call statistical regularities, that is certain things go with other things reliably. And so that lets you understand what sounds mean <laughs> as mm -hmm. words. And it lets you, um, you, you know, basically get through your day without being shocked and surprised in every, uh, in every moment. But um, there's a lot of uncertainty now, in part because we haven't been around each other too much, but it also because there's a, you don't, there's a lot of uncertainty that COVID's introduced. So is, you know, is this person going to wear a mask? Are they not going to wear a mask? And what do they think about wearing masks? Did, are they vaccinated? Or are they not vaccinated? What do they think about vaccination? And actually this is stressful because the most metabolically efficient way is to, to run a body is to predict and correct when you need to. And what the two most expensive things, one of them is uncertainty. So when, you, when you're uncertain about something, you have this increase in arousal, which we experience as anxiety. That's because your brain's attempting to learn something so that it can predict better next time to reduce the uncertainty because uncertainty is expensive. Mm -hmm. And I have to say that, you know, COVID is not the beginning of uncertainty for us. We just lived through, you know, depending on your political predilections, you know, four or 12 years of uncertainty or even more. I mean, the increase in political, the political divide has increased uncertainty um, because you don't know, you know, how people are going to react to what you say. Like, I remember right after the, um, you know, when, when Trump was elected, it was really, even in a place where, like I live in Boston, Massachusetts. In Boston, Massachusetts, it's, it's a very democratic state, although we have, a, a, we've had a Republican governor, it's a great governor actually. Um, uh, but even here, it was not clear, you know, you just didn't know what people's political affiliations were. And Unlike in the past where you might not be, a, you might not be aware of someone's political affiliation, but if you had a different view than them, you weren't worried that they would react extremely to you. And, mm -hmm. you know, the day after Trump was elected, I was in a coffee shop and I watched one person throw a cup of coffee at another person in the coffee shop in downtown Boston. Wow. So. Yeah, because they disagreed on the political, right? So I think the uncertainty here is not the fact that people disagree politically because, you know, democracy is founded on disagree on mm -hmm. like debate or just, right? It's like the idea is that, well, you want to put a bunch of people together who 
may not always agree because then they'll debate with each other and they'll, you know, in the fire of debate, they will come up with a better solution. That's the idea, right? Right. Um, but the uncertainty comes from the relaxing of social norms. Um, you know, if I make myself predictable to you, then you're more predictable to me and everybody wins because it's like a, it dials down the cost of, of body budgeting. And when I say predictable, I don't necessarily mean that you have to agree with me. It's just, I'm not going to be worried that you're going to yell at me, that you're going to punch me, that you're going to shoot me, that you're going to throw coffee at me, that you're going to, you know, and so um, it's like the, there's been this erosion of um, predictability and or, you know, what I call sort of the casual, there's sort of a casual brutality to everyday life now um, that makes it really hard uh, for brains to predict. And that was there before COVID. So COVID, you know, we were already in a metabolically compromised state. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I should, before COVID happened, and I should say too, that I'm not reducing everything to metabolism. I'm just <laughs> saying that, no, but it's a really interesting lens to look at this all through. Yeah, and it's and it's not really it's a lens that most people don't use. So it's just one piece of a more complex puzzle. But you know, if you look at, um, well, let me just back up and say, you know, when when something is stressful and makes it with so let's say your brain makes a withdrawal and doesn't replenish, um, you pay a small tax for that. Mm -hmm. Small. It's like pennies you could think of it as right really small right like if you're stressed while you're eating a meal or like within two hours of eating a meal your your um digest digestive processes are less efficient to the tune of 104 calories it's like eating an extra 104 calories basically now 104 calories is not going to do anything to you. But if you add that up over a year, it's 11 pounds. Okay. The analogy that I like to say, use is if you drip water on a steel pipe, solid steel pipe, it's not going to harm that pipe. The first drip, the 10th drip, the thousandth drip even, but eventually that drip, those drips are going to bore a hole through that pipe, that solid steel pipe. Mm -hmm. And nervous systems work the same way. If you're stressed uh, because you're not getting enough sleep or because you have economic hardship to deal with or because um, you're working in a, an environment or you're living in an environment where there's a lot of social evaluation or um, you're online a lot where there's a lot of ambiguity and evaluation <laughs> or, you know, I mean, there are a lot of, right. And your brain doesn't care where the stress comes from, but eventually what will happen is all of these little taxes will add up to a major deficit. And that increases your vulnerability to metabolic illnesses like diabetes and heart disease and depression, and over the long term, dementia, which is also has a metabolic basis to it. So, you know, depression is like a bankrupt body budget, just, you know, you don't have spoons for much, mm -hmm. not for learning anything new, not for moving around too much, you know, you're really encumbered, your body budget's just, just 
bankrupt. And so if you look at what are the, um, you know, major illnesses that are, you know, on the rise, they're metabolic illnesses, actually, including depression, which is now, um, according to the World Health Organization, I think the leading cause of disease um, uh, burden around the world. Wow. Yeah. So you had talked about predictability. Um, and there was a question you raised in the book, which I thought was really interesting um, about free will. If our brain is predicting what we'll do, how much free will do we really have? Yeah, free will is just such a interesting and somewhat perplexing question. And mm-hmm. usually um, the way people think about it is, um, you know, that you're in a situation where you're presented with, maybe you're faced with, um, a decision between, you know, doing something that's healthful and, or good for you or helpful to someone else and doing something that is, you know, maybe desirable, but not so helpful. And that's, it's always sort of cast in those terms. Like, should I eat that second piece of chocolate cake? You know, should I, should I have that bagel, you know, loaded up with stuff or should I, you know, have a salad, you know, like these, (laughs) Um, was, you know, usually sort of understood that way. Do I really need that, you know, 25th black sweater or do I, you know, should I be saving mm-hmm. money for my retirement? Um, and the, the problem with, with thinking about it in that way is, is that, you know, most of the decisions, and I put that in air quotes, that your brain is making, it's making in a way that it doesn't make itself aware. Your brain doesn't make itself aware of the decision-making process. It's making a decision, you know, weighing pros and cons and so on of multiple predictive paths, right? So in every moment, your brain is using the past to predict multiple futures. So you're sort of, and, and those, whatever it is that you do becomes the past that your brain will use later to predict the future. So you're sort of always cultivating your past in a way. Um, uh, for the person that you will become in a moment from now. Um, and once you realize that, you realize, well, there's a way of thinking about free will that gets you out of this sort of like never ending uh, debate about, you know, do I have authorship over my own actions? Because if it's the case that you are, you know, whatever efforts you put towards controlling your behavior now, like you want to eat that, you know, next, you want to eat two chocolate cupcakes instead of one, or, you know, you want to have that extra cup of coffee to like borrow more energy from tomorrow to get through today or whatever it is, you know, you, you know, you should be going to sleep, but you've got all this work to do. And, you know, you know, or you're, you know, futzing around online, you know, when you should really be getting ready for bed, whatever Mm -hmm. it is. Um, you know, whatever decisions that you make have a consequence for um, the ease with which you're, you, you will take one path or another the next time this, you're faced with this decision. And so you can expand the horizon of free will and say, all right, well, I can deliberately expose myself now I can invest energy now deliberately invest energy 
to expose myself to new things or cultivate new experiences, kind of like ex or exercise, you know, it's like exercise. I'm going to make an investment. I'm going to spend some, some energy now to learn something new or expose myself to something new or practice a new skill. Um, and then that's going to change the ease with which I can predict in the future. And that's a way of regulating yourself. Um, it's like making an investment today um, to make decision making easier in the future. And we do this all the time, like driving, right? We, we invest, it's, it's effortful. It, uh, it feels like we're having to engage in a tremendous amount of free will until we've practiced that skill enough that it becomes automatic. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can treat many, many, many things that way. Um, so free will isn't always exercising control in the moment. Sometimes it's exercising control now when things are not so stressful in order to make it easier to make a better decision or make a better choice when things actually are stressful. Mm. How so? Well, I, uh, am an inherently skeptical person. Mm -hmm. I, one of my colleagues down the hall from me studies positive emotions. So he was talking to me about, you know, this research that he was doing, but awe and gratitude and compassion and, you know, how good it is for you and how good it is for other people. And I was like, bah humbug. I don't believe it. Where's the data. And while I was waiting for the data, you know, to come in, I thought, all right, okay, okay, okay. This was a while ago. Like, okay, okay, because it's been established. You know, positive emotions are actually very, very healthy for you and for other people too. Um, but I thought, all right, I'm going to practice every day. I'm going to experience awe for five minutes. I'm going to try to do this. And you know, I started with easy things. Like I'd be driving a lot. So you know, I describe this actually in how emotions are made. My first book with you guys, mm-hmm. and. Um, you know, where I'm driving on the Mass Pike and there was the Museum of Science had a, um, a board, you know, a um, billboard with a little adorable little baby orangutan, just the cutest little thing you've ever seen in your entire life. Mm-hmm. And every day I would drive to work and I would pass this bulletin board and I would be just just in, you know, in a state of wonder over the cuteness of this little animal. Like I couldn't believe how adorable it was. And then at a certain point, you know, I would start to anticipate, but even before I got to the billboard, I was starting to, I would imagine, oh, I know I'm going to see the billboard in a minute or two. (laughs) Um, And then, you know, so it's easy to feel awe at a newborn baby or at the stars at night or a beautiful, you know, um, ocean scene or what, you know, the fall colors of trees or whatever, those are easy things to use to start to cultivate awe. Then I moved on to harder things like a weed, like a dandelion popping, poking its head through a crack in a sidewalk. You know, it's just like on the surface, an ugly little, um, you know, uh, weedscape, but I would turn it into, uh, um, an, an example of the power of nature to be unconstrained by human attempts to constrain it. And so I would practice, I would practice experiencing awe for five minutes a day, um, where I would, you know, 
I'm giving my nervous system a break because if I'm a speck, right, in, in, in something that's wondrous and uh, much bigger and more impressive than me, then uh, my problems are also small. <laughs> and um, and um, it turns out that if you do this on a regular basis, you, um, you're able to really you know, call on a call up an experience of awe when you need it, it, right when you need it, you know, like, uh, somebody, you know, in my business, I'm getting negative feedback every day. You know, I, uh, we submit a paper, we get lots of negative comment pages and pages and pages of negative comments. And sometimes it's not just negative comments about, you know, the work. It's sometimes negative comments about you or, you know, every day. And so, it let, or, you know, you pick up the paper and all horrible things are happening all over the place. And, you know, it gives your nervous system a break for a minute. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that this is a really useful thing to do in other ways too. So for example, if you're someone who didn't grow up in a diverse environment and you didn't grow up in a diverse neighborhood and you really want to um, make sure that you are not engaging in stereotypic, you know, you're not engaging, you're not in, in entertaining stereotypes. You're not, you want to reduce the likelihood that you uh, engage in um, um, prejudicial behavior. You can expose yourself to people who are different from you deliberately. It's like exercise, talking to someone who's really different from you um, is uh, an investment. It's an investment in a more flexible you. If it matters to you, you'll do it. Mm -hmm. And that is a form of free will that, you know, we as humans, uh, not only do we exercise that, we actually often cultivate opportunities for ourselves to learn new things. Um, and so that that is a way that we have control that we don't normally think of it that way, but it really is an element of, uh, of uh, or a way in which we can control, um, you know, what we do, what we feel, what we think, who we are, uh, that doesn't have to engage that, you know, struggle in the moment of like, should I or shouldn't I, you know, I really want mm -hmm. to, but I, I probably shouldn't, you know, you can, uh, you can't avoid that, you know, in all cases, but you can certainly reduce the reduce the times that you have to kind of arm wrestle with yourself. Yeah. Yeah. That's really helpful. Um, so Lisa, I want to ask you one more question before we part here. Um, so this is a question that we ask all of our guests on the podcast, since this is primarily for teachers and their students, who was your favorite teacher? Oh, that's so hard. Um, <laughs> I had a couple of teachers though. Who I, so I guess my favorite teacher ever was my doctoral advisor, who I really feel like he, I, I didn't really have like a great dad. So I kind of feel like he was my dad. He's like my academic dad, you know, mm -hmm. um, I'm, we're still in touch. And um, I still, every time I win an award or, you know, I, like I send, I, every time I write a book or whatever, I send him, you know, <laughs> I said, and then he, you know, he's just, he's like one of these guys who, so I was mostly mentored by men and 
he's like, he was such a curmudgeon guy. Uh, <laughs> and he was my uh, advice, doctoral advisor. He actually failed my first dissertation proposal, which I talk about in how emotions are made. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, he's like really still very dear to me. And I learned so much from him actually. And he gave me a lot of confidence. Like when he, when he led the committee to fail my doctoral dissertation. So, you know, my advisor, my original doctoral advisor had left uh, to go to another university and I needed to find a new advisor. And I remember him asking me to be his student and he remembers me asking him to be my advisor. Who knows what really what happened, but uh, he chaired the committee and he failed my first proposal. What did he, I hadn't done my dissertation yet. I was proposing to do a dissertation and he said, that won't make a very good job talk, that material. If, when, if you do that research that you're proposing to do, that won't make a very good job talk. And I thought, job talk? Oh, he thinks I could be a professor with my own lab. So here's this really famous scientist who I barely know, who's just agreed to take me on. He fails my dissertation, but he manages to tell me something that changes really the entire course of my whole life. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it, so I learned a tremendous amount from him. Um, but, um, and I still, we're still very close. And, uh, but the, I have another teacher though, too, who I, his name, he's not alive anymore. His name was Carl Vidmar and he was my chemistry teacher in high school. And, um, I don't talk about it very often, but I grew up really impoverished. And I mean, there's no reason why I don't talk. I mean, I talk about it on podcasts. It's just, I haven't really written about it, but I, I grew up really impoverished. I didn't have, um, I didn't have money for a lot of things, including textbooks. And when I was in high school in Canada, uh, we had to, sometimes we had to buy our own textbooks and I couldn't buy uh, my textbooks because I didn't have any money to buy textbooks. I didn't have any money at all, actually. And he, not only did he buy me my chemistry textbook, but he would, um, you know, like, he just was like really supportive. So sometimes, you know, I would study with this whole group of people. And so he would come by and bring us ice creams or he would, you know, it was like uh, little M&Ms, like packages of M&Ms while we were studying. And he, um, and he really nurtured my uh, interest. I mean, so you have to imagine, right? I'm a high school student. I'm, I, I you know, can't afford to do what a lot of my friends do. I, I didn't go to movies. I didn't, you know, I just couldn't do those kinds of things. I, um, and I'm a girl and, but he really nurtured my uh, interest in science. And, uh, and that's unusual for someone who is, you know, low SES and, um, and, uh, and, and a young woman. It takes somebody really special at that time, right? Now we're really aware of trying to diversify STEM and so on and so forth, but not at that time, right? This is like the... Uh, you know, late 70s, early 80s, maybe. Um, And so he also had a really big impact on me. He was just like a really big 
generous, like a big teddy bear, generous person. He was just like incredibly generous. And um, that didn't make him an easy teacher <laughs> at all, but he was just, he really nurtured my, um, he really nurtured my interest in science and he was really kind to me in ways that were unexpected and that I uh, make sure that I pay forward uh, as much as I can. That's great. I, lo I love both of those stories. I think that's really, really great. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and thank you for such an amazing, interesting talk. I really enjoyed this. Yeah, me too. Thank you so much. All right. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Harper Academic Calling. Subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite third-party app for more episodes. And be sure to visit us at harperacademic.com for more information about this and other great books.